Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the grace that you provided for us in Christ. We thank you that in him uh, we have been declared righteous. And uh, even though sometimes we don't feel righteous, we know that we can trust in what Christ has done when he said it is finished. He meant it. And so, Father, we pray for hearts that are confident and grounded in the finished work of Jesus so that we pursue holiness, we pursue righteousness, knowing that we are covered in His righteousness and therefore do not fear your wrath, but want to please you with how we live our lives, reflecting you rightly as image bearers. God, we ask that you um, work in us as we go through this next uh, chapter in Numbers. Um, we thank you for the history that you've recorded here and the word that you give us in, in each of these um, pictures that we have of Jesus and us and, and his relationship to us. And we pray that we would drink it in and live it out the rest of the week. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are continuing in Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 8. Last week, for those of you who are... Um, I don't know, uh, gluttons for punishment. No. We did 89 verses in chapter 7 last week. This week's not so much, uh, not, not as bad, it's just, just a few. But uh, massive things going on. We talked about in Numbers how it's set up really in cycles of events, not chronologically, right? We talked about how cycle 2, chapters 7 through half of 10, come before chapters 1 through 6. And so uh, the Hebrew mindset, uh, hi there, uh, sets things up uh, in, in terms of persuasion, of, of making a point, of, of, um, of having something to say that the facts mean something beyond just on X date this happened, on X date this happened, and following chronologically. So we're looking at Numbers 8. And last time we looked at the record of the offerings made by each of the tribes of Israel for the de dedication of the tabernacle. The big theme in our next cycle here is celebrating the presence of God in the midst of the people. And so there's a lot of stuff in here about the tabernacle and, and things uh, surrounding it. We called last week. Uh, what happened last week? Do you remember? I mean, it's just last week. Um, in chapter 7, what was going on? They finished dedicating the tabernacle in Leviticus, we saw, and in Exodus, the, those two passages tied together. What happened last week? What was another step in that? Do you remember? They brought a bunch of gifts. They brought a bunch of gifts. So each leader of the 12 tribes brought like, I mean, 12 times. We saw the same gifts being brought. And it, nobody tried to outdo each other. They were all unified. And all of these were dedicatory things to be used in the tabernacle for service. This time, and we call it, by the way, the 12 days of Hanukkah. I don't know if you remember that. Okay, so this time, we're going to continue the second cycle uh, that deals with, of course, the celebration of the presence of God. And it has, it starts out with a description of the menorah. What's a menorah? The, the candlestick, the lampstand. Now, if you remember in our, some of you may remember, uh, actually, you remember, um, a lot of our discussion over the temple 
and Clint was there too. Uh, our discussion of the temple dealt with different pieces of furniture inside the, the tabernacle, right? And so one of those pieces is the lampstand. And there's several different passages dealing with how they were to construct the lampstand, what, how they were to use it. This today rounds that out. Finally, you get this, this last little piece of setting up the lampstand. Why don't we set it up all at once? I don't know. But it's just, it's spread out. And it's, it, again, it goes into that Hebrew mindset of what's important now to say versus, I just, I want a manual, you know. That's not, that's not how they did it. So um, we're going to look at the, the lighting of the menorah and how that was done. And then we'll get on to the, the cleansing of the Levites for service, for service. There's some really weird stuff in this section to us. It'd be weird. I'd probably weird to them too. Um, but we'll, we'll figure it out, I think. Uh, let's look at verse 1, starting chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand. Hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. All right. First of all, whose duty is this to do this lampstand? Who's Aaron. responsible for this? Aaron's. Who's Aaron? Chief the what? Chief priest. Chief priest, high priest, maybe. So this setting up of the lampstand is conveyed by God, commanded by God through Moses to the high priest. It's the high priest's duty alone to deal with this lampstand, okay? Remember, there are three chambers. Let me do a little review here. There are three chambers in the tabernacle. There's the outer court, there's the holy place, the inner court, and then there's the inside chamber where the ark is. That's the holy of holies. And there's a big veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And so this lampstand is in that second chamber, right? There's a, a table with a bunch of bread, about 12 loaves, odd, uh, on one side. And then there is the lampstand on the other side. And what does he say? He gives a command through Moses to Aaron. How is Aaron to set this lamp up? What does it say? In front of the lampstand. What, what does that mean? Set it up in front of the lampstand. Have the light shining in front of the lampstand. Um, the lampstand is positioned opposite the table of the bread, the show, showbread. Some, your King James Version will call it the showbread table. Um, it's positioned opposite that with the loaves of bread on it. So the menorah is to be set up in such a way as to shine both toward the, the, the veil and the table, right? It's supposed to light that area that's opposite it. So what? Why make a point of this? What's, what, what's, the, what's the issue here? Do you remember when we talked about the lampstand, what that symbolized? What was going on with that? Why would God have a lampstand in the, other than the practical reason you've got to see, why set it up this way? What does a lamp, you think, show in the tabernacle?
It's a symbol for holiness. Okay, symbol for holiness. There's seven bulbs, so that's kind of a completion. A completion, okay. When you talk about darkness and something shining light, what does that generally convey in just imagery that you would see? You, the way forward. Okay. Who's shining it? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. <laughs> and ultimately where we're going. Uh, the lampstand, if you remember, in the lampstand, the picture of the lampstand, it's God giving light to His people. Right? And He's shining, He says, shine it opposite toward the showbread table. That's the table of fellowship. He's brightening it, giving them a, a view of the, the fellowship table. And the, the image here is that God, through His Word, is bringing light to His people of His presence, uh, of His fellowship, through what's going on in the tabernacle. So you've got this, this picture of God giving light and life to His people. He gives them His Word through the man He has appointed, in this case, Moses. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. uh, the lighting of the menorah reflects Yahweh's presence to Israel. And this is such a fundamental thing in Jewish thought. I mean, Psalm 119, you've read that brief passage before. Uh, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He's drawing from the imagery that's in the tabernacle. And that's a, I mean, we learned that when we were like four or five. That verse is pretty fundamental to every Awanas group ever. <laughs> that's drawing from the tabernacle, right? He's drawing from that menorah position in the tabernacle, shining a light. Okay, so as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking through this, that statement by Jesus just kind of hit me. Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the light of the world, right? That all of that stuff. The, in the New Testament, the writers co-opt this imagery to describe Jesus as being the lampstand, the light that shines toward the fellowship of God, right? So you see some of that here, and, and of course, the extraordinary value of God's word, of God's presence, of His light is is shown in the fact that the lampstand is made of this hammered gold, which is kind of intricate work. And it says it's made from gold from its base to its flowers. I don't typically think of a lamp having flowers. What does that mean? I think it goes all the way up from its base to its top and the top the little fringe around the top is kind of flowers. Maybe. The design had flowers. The design had flowers. In fact, it looked like sort of like an almond tree is, was the, is the basic format of it. <laughs> One of the things that I think we often overlook about the decor of the tabernacle and of the temple is that it's to replicate a garden. Everything in there has images of the Garden of Eden. A lot of uh, scholars will... will will point to that. The, the different things that are in the tapestries, the colors that are used are very vibrant colors. There's this idea of, um, of a garden. And at the center of the Garden of Eden was what? The tree. the tree of life, right? So you have again this image of God's perfect setup at the beginning and how to get back into fellowship with Him. How, to, how are we going to restore Eden? Um, 
in there. All right, so let's look at uh, let's look at the cleansing and consecration of the Levites. Look at verse five. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them." Sprinkle the water of purification upon them, and let them go with a razor over all their body, and wash their clothes, and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd, and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. And you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. Let's stop there for now. First is their cleansing. What are the steps God gives Moses for the cleansing of the Levites? What are the steps? What do you see? Start in verse uh, 9. Or 5. Pour water on them. Shaving. What kind of... <laughs> that's, let's look at the first one. Then we'll go to the shaving, which always bothers me as a good Reformed you know, person. Uh, the, sprinkling also doesn't bother you. No. Well, it's not sprinkling here, by the way. Well, what does it call it? What does it call it? Water of purification. Another, another uh, translation or another literal translation of that would be water of sin. What's the idea behind that? I have sin as a Levite, and I'm role playing here because I'm not. I'm a Gentile, but I have sin. I need to be have that sin washed off, and so figuratively, symbolically, this water is. The word is actually to splatter them, to to just you know how they do the the brush with the blood and they do the thing. That's kind of the that's kind of the idea here with the water is to splatter them with water. That's an odd term. I don't usually think of splattering with water, but that's the word that's used, and it's a covering. It's a washing of symbolically off uh, of sin off of them to do the service that they're going to be called to do. What's the second thing? But, now, this is the thing that bothers us the most, because not all of us are swimmers, but they shave their entire body, head to foot. They're shaved. That would be odd. I don't know why. Uh, I think it was a cultural thing at the time. An Egyptian priests kind of did this. Uh, it, so maybe it was co-opting some of the culture around them to show, to demonstrate to the people around them, we are being purified, we're being cleansed for service. Um, and you'll see that a lot of times. There's borrowed imagery to, I mean, you take what's pagan and you redeem it kind of thing. Is, is some of that's being used here. All right, so what's the third thing? What's the third thing? Wash your clothes. Wash your clothes. I mean, don't they do that every day? <laughs> I mean, what, what are we living in here? I mean, wash your clothes. Water scarce, right? It's a precious thing. They're in the wilderness traveling. You washed every day, you'd slow down the group. Um, and wash your clothes. Again, this is a common symbol in the culture of ritual purity, especially in the Old Testament. That you see this again and again, that the, their clothes are being washed as they're being dedicated and, and cleansed for service. All right, look at verse 9. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. 
Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and you shall offer the one for the sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord, and make atonement for the Levites. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons, and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Okay, let's, let's lay the groundwork first. <clears throat> who's involved in this first? Who's, who's involved? Who are the parties? The Levites, the whole congregation. The Levites, the whole congregation. Who else? Aaron, Aaron and, Mo and Moses, right? Those two are there. So Moses is to bring the Levites, and all the people are to be assembled. He's to bring the Levites before the people. And what does the congregation do? They lay their hands on them. What is that all about? A boot, if you're from Canada. What is that all about? Why would, they, why would the congregation lay their hands on the Levites? What does that convey? What's that? Okay, so... So solidarity is one way. Um, what's another? What's another? What, sending them as a representative. Okay, as a representative. I think that's right. They're all in unity, sending them as a representative. Where? To the tabernacle. Yeah, to the temple. To the to service in the sanctuary. You represent us in service to God in the tabernacle. That's the laying on of hands. Now, how many people about this time in Israel? Millions or more, you know, several million maybe with kids and animals. Um, sometimes interchangeable. So you, you have millions of, of people here. How chaotic would it be to have everybody converge on the tribe of Levi and lay their hand? Find yourself a Levi, you know, and just kind of... A lot of people argue that what they did was they did this through representation. The leaders themselves right. would go and find, uh, would, would lay their hands on the Levites as a uh, dedication for this. So uh, it may be a gesture to show the Levites are representatives of the people as they labor in the sanctuary. All right, once that representative status is pictured, what happens next? What happens after they lay their hands on them? And what does that mean? Wave offering. Wave offering. What's waved? What's waved? They got the line and they did the yay Israel. You know the kind of thing. There you go. Twelve times waving around the tabernacle. Then, they, then it fell down and they had to start all over. What What does that mean? What's being waved here? Now, you remember, in the, in the dedication of a priest, this is back in Leviticus, way back when. Go back and read it, it's great. Um, in the dedication of a priest, part of that was taking a portion of the sacrificing and waving it before the Lord as a representation of the dedication of the priest, right? Is that what's going on here? The Levites themselves. The Levites themselves are being waved. <clears throat> That's weird. I, how does that, what does that look like? I'm, Joshua's a Levite. Does Aaron pick him up? Ugh, he's, I mean, he's an 80 year old man. He, Is that what's going on? Waving can also mean to elevate, to raise above. So some scholars say that they put them on a platform and just kind of did one of these. Because it really would, I mean, that physically, I don't know how, we don't know what that means. But what's the implication? 
I've got a portion of a meat offering. That's one thing. But they themselves are the offering. That's kind of a big deal. I'm alive. I'm not tied to the altar. That's a good thing. We want to go with that. But what does that mean? They're to serve in the tabernacle as a wave offering to the Lord. That's their life. Because, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament don't have anything. To, they, don't really, they don't really connect much. That's a big deal. When you wave an entire tribe to the Lord as a dedication, their whole life is one of offering to the Lord. They cleanse them through these things, these ritual cleansings, and then they present them to the Lord as a gift. Um, all right. I, I can't visualize the mechanics of it, but the picture here is that the, the Levites are the offering. To raise up or elevate is kind of what the word means. So in some way they're held up in status above the common people of Israel, perhaps, is another, another way of, of saying that. And we see this later on in the history of Israel. The Levites are esteemed higher than, than most. You, the, um, the Good Samaritan, who are the two that he holds out? The priest and the Levite, and they both fail. Yeah? Yeah, it's when, when they take the meat portion with it. It's a de it's <clears throat> this is an offering to you. Thing? Yeah, it was this is a this is a yes. After the atonement, after the burnt offering, after the sin and all that stuff is done, you're clean and you have favor. The burnt offering is a favor offering. The the meat offering is usually waived as a presentation of this is this is an ongoing sacrifice to you. Is that part of when they have the fellowship meal? Is that I, think, I think that's, yeah, the part of the same, same thing. And sometimes they'll do it with grain. They'll wave grain or they'll wave a drink or they'll pour out a drink, you know, th those kinds of things. But, yeah, it's part of the fellowship deal that's, that's, a, that's a representative of, of um, the offering, the, uh, the offeror. So the Levites were a means of the Israelites having fellowship Right, exactly. They're the representatives, and, and he says this later, and we'll, we'll get to it, that they're there to keep you from getting plagues in the presence because you're unholy. They're there as a sacrifice for that, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, yeah, they're a means of fellowship. Yeah, that's good. All right, so look at verse 12. They're elevated... But they're not sinless, are they? What do they need? Sacrifice. They need, they need atonement, right? So he sets out the mechanics of an atoning sacrifice for this tribe that's being presented as an offering from the people to God. They too must have atonement, and especially before they take up their work in the sanctuary, right? So how, how, are they, how are they to do this? They're to cover up their sin. There's two bulls. They cover up their sin. That's the, the, the smart folks use that $10 word, expiation, covering up a sin. And then it protects them from, uh, in the sanctuary from God's wrath. Smart folks would call that propitiation. So there's the covering of the sin, expiation, and a protection from the wrath towards sin, Propitiation. So if you're seeing those terms being thrown about, that's what that means. Um, 
So he makes atonement for them. And Moses makes atonement, or Aaron does, makes atonement for them um, as they're entering into service. All right, look at verse 14. Then you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn from among the people of Israel are mine, both man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. All right. Why is it necessary for the Levites to be waived before the Lord? Why is it necessary? What does he point to? And this isn't the first time we've heard this. They're the, the firstborn, you know, like we saw in Egypt with the Passover angel. Mm. He killed the firstborn, therefore he mandated that everybody in Israel, the firstborn, was dedicated to the Lord. But instead of doing that, he substituted the Levites as that role. So, so they're the, set apart. The concept of substitution mm -hmm. is what I'm keying in on here with what you just said, because that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. there, God could have killed the firstborn of Israel, too. It's not like Israel was sinless. It's not like they hadn't rebelled against God. Who was this man, Moses? You know, I mean, they, there was some pushback with Moses at the beginning and the voice of God at the beginning. I mean, it's not like God had to save them. Judgment could have fallen on everybody in the land. And he would have been completely justified to do so. But he showed mercy and set up a visual for the mercy, right? Passover. You kill the lamb, you eat the lamb, you put the blood, the blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death will pass over, and I won't take your firstborn, but the firstborn are consecrated to me. So instead of killing them and judging you, they are dedicated to me. They become things that are cursed. They transfer from things that are cursed to things that are a gift to me, dedicated to me. And then he takes it one step further and says, instead of your firstborn, here's a tribe, and they will serve me in the sanctuary, right? And so you have this substitution idea. They're consecrated. They're sanctified. They're dedicated through this wave offering stuff. They're atoned for, you see. And so... How does he separate the degree of that separation? Or how does he define or, or describe the degree of that separation of the Levites? What is it, what's the language he uses in verse, uh, oh gosh, what is it, 19? Is that right? Let me see. He's a gift. Well, what is it, I'm sorry, at the beginning of this, um, let's see, for there, verse 16. Holy given. So there's not partially given, they get off on weekends, they're wholly given to God as a gift from Israel to God. And then what does God do with the gift that he's given from Israel? He gives it back. In what way? 
In what way does he give it back? He protects them. Okay. From um, plagues. From plagues, plagues judgment for, for their sin. Okay. Inadequate worship. You know. Yeah. They have the right form, so it's a protection. There's a protection there because they're being obedient to what he's told them to do. Right. Um, they're holy, dedicated. They're holy, offered. They're wholly consecrated to God. He gives them back to the priest to help in the service of the tabernacle on behalf of the people so that they're protected. Um, the Levites are substitutes for all the people of Israel. They represent Israel in the work of the tent of meeting. What does that mean for non-Levites? Do they go work in the temple? No. no. Why? Because they'll, they'll die. Right? That's why we have Levites, <laughs> because, because uh, of the sin in the presence of God, he can't tolerate it, and so he's made a way for them to have service in the tabernacle, to be near him um, through the Levites. All right, so look at verse 20. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel uh, to the Levites, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, the people of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. And Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So they did to them. So again, we're seeing this theme that's consistent in these first two cycles of Numbers of obedience. Um, God's giving commands and Moses records the people diligently obeying those commands. Let's live it up while it lasts because we know the rest of Numbers, right? Uh, look at verse 23. Being a Levite has advantages. It comes with a retirement plan. So, in the verse 23, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in, the assigning, in assigning their duties. So this whole section is finished by showing... Uh, that God likes term limits. <laughs> he is to enter service at 25 and retire from service at 50 because 25 years is more than enough time to do it right. Go sit down. Uh, this apparently was kind of flexible because remember in, in Numbers 4, um, the starting age was 30. But which came first, cycle 1 or cycle 2? Cycle two. So this is the baseline, 25 to 50. And it seems a little flexible because here they, they're not needed until like 30 based on the work that they had. But in First Chronicles, I think it's First Chronicles, yeah, First Chronicles 23, uh, it talks about them starting at age 20 because there's a bunch of stuff to do in the, in the newly built temple, right? So they start them a little earlier. Some rabbis say that um, what was going on was that they were trained early, and then they started service based on when they needed them to do. So then, you know, train them at 25, start them to work at 30 or something along those lines. All right. 
couple of things strike me here, and although there, there are more probably here than we have time to address. First, the lampstand points ultimately to Jesus. What are the odds? John 8, 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He was set apart to represent us in temple work. John 10, 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. So he again recognizes that God set him apart. God consecrated him to go into the world and do what he had him to do. It's because Jesus was lifted up that we have been set apart. Jesus says this in his prayer in John 17, And for their sake I consecrate myself. I'm cleansed by water, even though he had no sin. He goes through the rituals, right? Remember being baptized by John the Baptist? We've got to do this so that all the law is fulfilled. Um, I don't know about the shaving. I don't think Jesus ever shaved himself completely, so I don't. But the point is, he took on the role of one who is being set apart, being cleansed for a purpose. He says, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they, may be, they also may be sanctified in the truth. And Hebrews 10.14 pushes that further and says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it's because Jesus is being lifted up, Jesus the wave offering, um, because he's being lifted up, that we are in him being set apart. Right? It's from the security of Christ's offering that we are called to be wholly consecrated to him. Hebrews 10.10 10 says, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we start from a, from a standpoint of, if I'm in Jesus, I'm sanctified. It's all been done for me. His work is accomplished. I'm now righteous before God. But, what does Paul say? He calls us to holiness... Not to be right with God, not to be atoned for, but because of our standing in who Jesus is. <coughs> he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to this language. And such were some of you, past tense, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's a standing that we have in Christ of already being washed, already being cleansed, already being sanctified, and already being justified. But... Because of that, because of that, what does Paul say to us in Romans 12? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a wave offering, a living sacrifice. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, you've been cleansed, and acceptable, offerings have been made, to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that mean? 
Life is worship. I mean, some of these guys are, are pulling out juice pans from under the sacrifice. That's not glorious. That's gross work. But even that mundane, gross task is sacred before God because what He's called them to do. He set them apart to do holy work. There is a holiness, a sacredness in the mundane of our lives because we're doing it as a wave offering to God. Right? Um, you don't... Well... You're not more holy going to the Alka Indians, right, than you are staying here and living lives, doing your work as unto the Lord, serving your clients well, doing what you're doing. You're not more holy. God may call you to that. And if He set you apart for that, great, do it with all your might. But it doesn't mean you're more or less holy. It doesn't mean you're more or less sanctified. It doesn't mean that your life has less value and the things that you're doing are less holy and pleasing to God. Uh, Philip riffs off of Martin Luther a lot. You change a diaper to the glory of God, you know. And in the nursery, <laughs> I think there's a level of aroma to God that is certainly sanctified by doing that. And life, you're not. I think a lot of times we tend to think of if I just go to a seminary and do church stuff, or if I if I go off to the mission field or whatever. Those things are great if God set you apart to do that. I don't want to discourage that, but don't feel like you're less of a Christian or less worthy before God because you're just doing your nine to five job as unto the Lord. Yeah. Saying, there's an old saying that I think is very true, and I think something we should just imbibe on always wanting to do the next thing, always wanting to, wherever you go, there you are. You're taking your junk with you, wherever, whatever location you're doing. You still have to sacrifice, you still have to sanctify yourself, you still have to kill sin in your life, whether you're in the heat of Africa or the comfort of a, a middle of a Sunday school in Tyler, Texas. You still have stuff you've got to put down and kill. It doesn't matter the location. It doesn't make you less holy because you're doing it here versus over there. You may do it faster over there, with some, or maybe not. It may really show some stuff that's really ugly, you know, the more you get hit. Anyway, the point, the point I want to make is all of life is worship. All of life for the Christian is temple work. We're called priests. We're called holy to God. We're called to do um, stuff that, as a living sacrifice because not to earn favor with God, but because of what He's done to give us favor that we didn't deserve. We start from that premise.
Yeah. So with this, the symbolism here, would it be fair to say Jesus is the lampstand, he's the Levite, he's the wave offering, he's the And he's a tabernacle. He's the tabernacle. Yeah. But he also, all those symbols are used of the Christian church. That's right. That's right. Because he says, I'm the light of the world. And he also tells the, the believers, or his disciples, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light. Don't hide your light. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I mean, we're in him. We're imaging him. I mean, the light doesn't come from us. We're just mirrors, right? We're just reflecting. Um, anyway, and, and you either reflect, I'm going to get set right. You reflect rightly by being a clean mirror or you distort it by being an unclean mirror. So, I appeal to you, brothers, <laughs> by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. How are we transformed? But be transformed by what? Renewing your mind. Renewing your mind by bathing in the light from the lampstand, His Word. Uh, sanctify them. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth, he says in, in John 17. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, because being Christian is easy, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Testing, based on what measure? God's word. Do, what's God's will for my life? If we're doing the stuff that's written, eventually we're going to do stuff that working it out, applying it, is you'll, you'll look back and go, oh, do the stuff that's written. Uh, we may discern what the will of God, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good, acceptable, and perfect. That's what we're striving for, because when I see him, when he returns, I don't want to be ashamed. You ever think about that? I don't want to be ashamed that I missed, that I didn't, use the means that he's given me to, to reflect him well. I don't think that that involves, oh no, I'm going to hell. But I do think that there are, there, we are responsible for what we've been given. And if you've been given grace to do this, run with all your might and don't look back to reflect him rightly as a way of We're called to be Holy, consecrated to Him. All right. Any other comments? It's ten o'clock. I'm trying to be really good about this. It's, I'm not. I'm not the best. But any other comments? We'll pray. Um, that that we're talking about the Levites being Jesus. Uh, but we're also the Levites in a way. Um, just it talks about the Levites being there so that their plagues won't come on the rest of mm -hmm. them. Uh, would it be fair to say like that's kind of the church to the world? Mm -hmm. Like why hasn't God obliterated the world yet mm -hmm. because he's still working on us mm -hmm. and it, he still has people to call out of the world. Right. And so we're, we're kind of 
preventing plagues from coming onto the world. What does he call? He says, "You're light of the world." What, are, what does he also say about the church? That salt. Yeah. <clears throat> and the salt back then was used as a preservative for uh, to keeping meat from to keep meat from rotting, right? right? So the idea is because of the work of the church, when it's doing its, what it should do, when it's doing it rightly, it is a restraining grace on the culture. Mm. And yeah, so I think, I think you're right. The Levites doing what they're supposed to do are restraining grace on Israel of being plagued by coming to God in, in a wrong way. Um, yeah. We'll talk about this some more, but the idea that just because someone isn't a Christian doesn't mean that they are uh, that, that that they're not in covenant with God from birth is a, is a concept I think we often forget. You're either breaking the covenant or you're obeying the covenant through Christ. But everybody's in covenant with with God from by simply by being a creature. It's not necessarily saving grace to everyone, but there is a level of grace. There's a, yeah, there's a, a general grace, right. yeah, a common grace. It's called. Yeah. <clears throat> Is that a clearing of the throat? Or you okay? All right. I didn't know. The floor, please. Ah, I didn't know if that was going on. All right. Well, let me let me pray, and we'll we'll dismiss. And those that you need to leave at ten can uh, can be late. Um, God, thank you for the pictures that we see in your Word of your grace to your people. That you, because of the work of Christ, being set apart, being um, consecrated. Uh, as a wave offering to you um, to take our punishment, to um, represent us and take the, um, the wrath that was due to us. Because we can be confident that His mission was successful, we're now looking at um, a life of loving you, pursuing you, uh, being wholly consecrated to you. God, I pray that our hearts would be moved to that, that we would be drawn to Jesus more than any other, uh, that more than anything else, um, that we would be focused and single-minded and reflecting Him well while we still have time. So, Father, I pray that by Your Spirit You would help us to do that well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I like starting at night. What's that? Okay, good. <laughs>